Section 68 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 48. Louis Fourteenth, Literature and Art, Part 3. Every tongue was held within range of King Louis Fourteenth. It was only on the 22nd of December, 1701, four years after Fenelon's departure, that the Duke of Burgundy thought he might write to him in the greatest secrecy, quote, At last, my dear Archbishop, I find a favourable opportunity of breaking the silence I have kept for four years. I have suffered many troubles since, but one of the greatest has been that of being unable to show you what my feelings towards you were during that time, and that my affection increased with your misfortunes, instead of being chilled by them. I think with real pleasure on the time when I shall be able to see you again, but I fear that this time is still a long way off. It must be left to the will of God, from whose mercy I am always receiving new graces. I have been many times unfaithful to him since I saw you, but he has always done me the grace of recalling me to him, and I have not, thank God, been deaf to his voice. I continue to study all alone, although I have not been doing so in the regular way for the last two years, and I like it more than ever." but nothing gives me more pleasure than metaphysics and ethics, and I am never tired of working at them. I have done some little pieces myself, which I should very much like to be in a position to send you, that you might correct them as you used to do my themes in old times. I shall not tell you here how my feelings revolted against all that has been done in your case, but we must submit to the will of God, and believe that all has happened for our good. Farewell, my dear Archbishop. I embrace you with all my heart. I ask your prayers and your blessing. Louis. Quote, I speak to you of God and yourself only, answered Fenelon in a letter full of wise and tender counsels. It is no question of me. Thank God I have a heart at ease. My heaviest cross is that I do not see you, but I constantly present you before God in closer presence than that of the senses. I would give a thousand lives like a drop of water to see you such as God would have you. Next year, in 1702, the king gave the Duke of Burgundy the command of the army in Flanders. He wrote to Fenelon, quote, I cannot feel myself so near you without testifying my joy thereat, and at the same time, that which is caused by the king's permission to call upon you on my way. He has, however, imposed the condition that I must not see you in private. I shall obey this order, and yet I shall be able to talk to you as much as I please, for I shall have with me Saumery, who will make the third at our first interview after five years' separation. The archbishop was preparing to leave Cambrai so as not to be in the prince's way. He now remained only seeing the Duke of Burgundy, however, in the presence of several witnesses. When he presented him with his table-napkin at supper, the prince raised his voice, and turning to his old master, said, with a touching reminiscence of his childhood's passions, quote, I know what I owe you, you know what I am to you, end quote. The correspondence continued, with confidence and deference on the part of the prince, with tender, sympathetic, far-sighted, paternal interest on the part of the archbishop, more and more concerned for the perils and temptations to which the prince was exposed, in proportion as he saw him nearer to the throne, and more exposed to the incense of the world. Quote, the right thing is to become the counsel of his majesty, he wrote to him on the death of the Grand Dauphin, the father of the people, the comfort of the afflicted, the defender of the church. The right thing is to keep flatterers aloof and distrust them, to distinguish merit, seek it out and anticipate it to listen to everything, believe nothing without proof, and being placed above all, to rise superior to every one. The right thing is to desire to be father and not master. The right thing is not that all should be for one, but that one should be for all, to secure their happiness." A solemn and touching picture of an absolute monarch, submitting to God and seeking his will alone. 
Fenelon had early imbued his pupil with the spirit of it, and the pupil appeared on the point of realizing it, but God at a single blow destroyed all these fair hopes. Quote, all my ties are broken, said Fenelon. I live but on affection, and of affection I shall die. We shall recover ere long that which we have not lost. We approach it every day with rapid strides. Yet a little while, and there will be no more cause for tears. A week later he was dead, leaving amongst his friends, so diminished already by death, an immeasurable gap, and amongst his adversaries themselves the feeling of a great loss. Quote, I am sorry for the death of M. de Cambrai, wrote Madame de Maintenon on the 10th of January, 1715. He was a friend I lost through quietism, but it is asserted that he might have done good service in the council if things should be pushed so far. Fenelon had not been mistaken when he wrote once upon a time to Madame de Maintenon, who consulted him about her defects, quote, You are good towards those for whom you have liking and esteem, but you are cold so soon as the liking leaves you. When you are frigid, your frigidity is carried rather far, and when you begin to feel mistrust, your heart is withdrawn too brusquely from those to whom you had shown confidence. Fenelon had never shown any literary prepossessions. He wrote for his friends or for the Duke of Burgundy, lavishing the treasures of his mind and spirit upon his letters of spiritual guidance, composing, in order to convince the Duke of Orléans, his Traité de l'Existence de Dieu, indifferent as to the preservation of the sermons he preached every Sunday, paying more attention to the plans of government he addressed to the young Dauphin than to the publication of his works. Several were not collected until after his death. In delivering their eulogy of him at the French Academy, neither M. de Bose, who succeeded him, nor M. Dacier, director of the Academy, dared to mention the name of Télémaque, clever, or spirituel, quote, to an alarming extent, end quote, or faire part, in the minutest detail of his writings, rich, copious, harmonious, but not without tendencies to lengthiness, the style of Fenelon is the reflex of his character, sometimes a little subtle and covert, like the prelate's mind, it hits and penetrates without any flash, or éclat, and without dealing heavy blows. Quote, Graces flowed from his lips, said Chancellor d'Aguesso, and he seemed to treat the greatest subjects as if, so to speak, they were child's play to him. The smallest grew to nobleness beneath his pen, and he would have made flowers grow in the midst of thorns. A noble singularity, pervading his whole person, and a something sublime in his very simplicity, added to his characteristics a certain prophet-like air. Always original, always creative, he imitated nobody, and himself appeared inimitable. His last act was to write a letter to Father Letellier to be communicated to the king. Quote, I have just received extreme unction, that is, the state, reverend father, when I am preparing to appear before God, in which I pray you with instance to represent to the king my true sentiments. I have never felt anything but docility towards the church, and horror at the innovations which have been imputed to me. I accepted the condemnation of my book in the most absolute simplicity. I have never been a single moment in my life without feeling towards the king personally the most lively gratitude, the most genuine zeal, the most profound respect, and the most inviolable attachment. I take the liberty of asking of his majesty two favours, which do not concern either my own person or anybody belonging to me. The first is that he will have the goodness to give me a pious and methodical successor, sound and firm against Jansenism, which is in prodigious credit on this frontier. The other favour is that he will have the goodness to complete with my successor that which could not be completed with me on behalf of the gentlemen of Saint-Sulpice. I wish His Majesty a long life, of which the Church as well as the State has infinite need. If peradventure I go into the presence of God, I shall often ask these favours of him." How dread is the power of sovereign majesty, operative even at the deathbed of the greatest and noblest spirits, causing Fenelon in his dying hour to be anxious about the good graces of a monarch ere long like him a-dying. 
our thoughts may well linger over those three great minds pascal bossuet and fenelon one layman and two bishops all equally absorbed by the great problems of human life and immortality with different degrees of greatness and fruitfulness they all serve the same cause whether as defenders or assailants of jansenism and quietism the solitary philosopher or the prelates engaged in the court or in the guidance of men all three of them serving god on behalf of the soul's highest interests remained unique in their generation and without successors as they had been without predecessors leaving the desert and the church and once more entering the world we immediately encounter amongst women one and one only in the first rank marie de rabutin chantal marchioness of sevigny born at paris on the fifth of february sixteen twenty seven five months before bossuet like a considerable number of women in italy in the sixteenth century and in france in the seventeenth she had received a careful education she knew italian latin and spanish she had for masters manage and chaplain and she early imbibed a real taste for solid reading which she owed to her leaning towards the jansenists and port royal she was left a widow at five-and-twenty by the death of a very indifferent husband and she was not disposed to make a second venture before getting killed in a duel m de sevigny had made a considerable gap in the property of his wife who however had brought him more than five hundred thousand livres madame de sevigny had two children she made up her mind to devote herself to their education to restore their fortune and to keep her love for them and for her friends of them she had many often very deeply smitten with her all remained faithful to her and she deserted none of them though they might be put on trial and condemned like fouquet or perfidious and cruel like her cousin m de bussy rabutin the safest and most agreeable of acquaintances ever ready to take part in the joys as well as the anxieties of those whom she honoured with her friendship without permitting this somewhat superficial sympathy to agitate the depths of her heart she had during her life but one veritable passion which she admitted nobody to share with her her daughter madame de grignan the prettiest girl in france clever virtuous business-like appears in her mother's letters fitful cross-grained and sometimes rather cold madame de sevigny is a friend whom we read over and over again whose emotions we share to whom we go for an hour's distraction and delightful chat we have no desire to chat with madame de grignan we gladly leave her to her mother's exclusive affection feeling infinitely obliged to her however for having existed inasmuch as her mother wrote letters to her madame de sevigny's letters to her daughter are superior to all her other letters charming as they are when she writes to m de pomponne to m de coulanges to m de bussy the style is less familiar the heart less open the soul less stirred she writes to her daughter as she would speak to her it is not letters it is an animated and charming conversation touching upon everything embellishing everything with an inimitable grace she gave her daughter in marriage to count de grignan in january sixteen sixty nine next year her son-in-law was appointed lieutenant-general of the king in provence he was to fill the place there of the duke of vendome too young to discharge his functions as governor in the month of january sixteen seventy one m de grignan removed his wife to Esch he was a provencal he was fond of his province his castle of grignan and his wife madame de sevigny found herself condemned to separation from the daughter whom she loved exclusively Quote, in vain i seek my darling daughter i can no longer find her and every step she takes removes her father from me i went to st mary's still weeping and still dying of grief it seemed as if my heart and my soul were being wrenched from me and in truth what a cruel separation i asked leave to be alone I was taken into Madame de Yosset's room, and they made me up a fire. Agnes sat looking at me without speaking. That was our bargain. I stayed there till five o'clock, without ceasing to sob. All my thoughts were mortal wounds to me. I wrote to M. de Grignan, you can imagine in what key. 
Then I went to Madame de Lafayette's, who redoubled my griefs by the interest she took in them. She was alone, ill and distressed at the death of one of the nuns. She was just as I could have desired. I returned hither at eight, but when I came in, oh, can you conceive what I felt as I mounted these stairs? That room into which I used always to go, alas! I found the doors of it open, but I saw everything disfurnished, everything disarranged, and your little daughter who reminded me of mine. The wakenings of the night were dreadful. I think of you continuously. It is what devotees call an habitual thought, such as one should have of God, if one did one's duty. Nothing gives me any distraction. I see that carriage which is forever going on and will never come near me. I am forever on the highways. It seems as if I were afraid sometimes that the carriage will upset with me. The rains there have been for the last three days reduce me to despair. The Rhone causes me strange alarm. I have a map before my eyes. I know all the places where you sleep. This evening you are at Nevers. On Sunday you will be at Lyon, where you will receive this letter. I have received only two of yours. Perhaps a third will come. That is the only comfort I desire. As for others, I seek for none. End quote. During five and twenty years Madame de Sévigny could never become accustomed to her daughter's absence. She set out for the Rocher, near Vitry, a family estate of M. de Sévigny's. Her friend, the Duke of Chaulnes, was governor of Brittany. Quote, you shall now have news of our states as your penalty for being a Breton. M. de Chaulnes arrived on Sunday evening to the sound of everything that can make any in Vitry. On Monday morning he sent me a letter. I wrote back to say that I would go and dine with him. There are two dining-tables in the same room, fourteen covers at each table. Monsieur presides at one, Madame at the other. The good cheer is prodigious, joints are carried away quite untouched, and as for the pyramids of fruit, the doors require to be heightened. Our fathers did not foresee this sort of machine. Indeed, they did not even foresee that a door required to be higher than themselves. Well, a pyramid wants to come in, one of those pyramids which make everybody exclaim from one end of the table to the other. But so far from that boding damage, people are often, on the contrary, very glad not to see any more of what they contain. This pyramid, then, with twenty or thirty porcelain dishes, was so completely upset at the door that the noise it made put to silence the violins, hautbois, and trumpets. After dinner, M. de Locmaria and M. de Coeclogon danced with two fair Bretons some marvellous jigs, or passe and some minuets in a style that the court people cannot approach, wherein they do the bohemian and Breton step with a neatness and correctness which are charming. I was thinking all the while of you, and I had such tender recollections of your dancing and of what I had seen you dance, that this pleasure became a pain to me. The states are sure not to be long. There is nothing to do but to ask for what the king wants. Nobody says a word, and it is all done. As for the governor, he finds, somehow or other, more than forty thousand crowns coming in to him an infinity of presents, pensions, repairs of roads and towns, fifteen or twenty grand dinner-parties, incessant play, eternal balls, comedies three times a week, a great show of dress, that is the state's. I am forgetting three or four hundred pipes of wine which are drunk, but if I did not reckon this little item, the others do not forget it and put it first. This is what is called the sort of twaddle to make one go to sleep on one's feet, but it is what comes to the tip of your pen when you are in Brittany and have nothing else to say." Even in Brittany and at the Rocher, Madame de Sévigny always has something to say. The weather is frightful. She is occupied a good deal in reading the romances of La Calprenède and the Grand Cyrus, as well as the ethics of Nicole. Quote, For four days it has been one continuous tempest. All our walks are drowned. There is no getting out any more. Our masons, our carpenters, keep their rooms. In short, I hate this country, and I yearn every moment for your son. Perhaps you yearn for my reign. We do well, both of us. I am going on with the ethics of Nicole, which I find delightful. It has not yet given me any lesson against the rain, but I am expecting it, 
for I find everything there, and conformity to the will of God might answer my purpose, if I did not want a specific remedy. In fact, I consider this an admirable book. Nobody has written as these gentlemen have, for I put down to Pascal half of all that is beautiful. It is so nice to have one's self and one's feelings talked about, that though it be in bad part, one is charmed by it. What is called searching the depths of the heart with a lantern is exactly what he does. He discloses to us that which we feel every day, but have not the wit to discern or the sincerity to avow. I have even forgiven the swelling in the heart, or l'enfleur du coeur, for the sake of the rest, and I maintain that there is no other word to express vanity and pride, which are really wind. Try and find another word. I shall complete the reading of this with pleasure." Here we have the real Madame de Sévigny, whom we love, on whom we rely, who is as earnest as she is amiable and gay, who goes to the very core of things, and who tells the truth of herself as well as of others. Quote, you ask me, my dear child, whether I continue to be really fond of life. I confess to you that I find poignant sorrows in it, but I am even more disgusted with death. I feel so wretched at having to end all this thereby, that if I could turn back again, I would ask for nothing better. I find myself under an obligation which perplexes me. I embarked upon life without my consent, and I must go out of it, but that overwhelms me. And how shall I go? Which way? By what door? When will it be? In what condition? Shall I suffer a thousand thousand pains, which will make me die desperate? Shall I have brain fever? Shall I die of an accident? How shall I be with God? What shall I have to show Him? Shall fear, shall necessity bring me back to Him? Shall I have no sentiment but that of dread? What can I hope? Am I worthy of heaven? Am I worthy of hell? Nothing is such madness as to leave one's salvation in uncertainty, but nothing is so natural, and the stupid life I lead is the easiest thing in the world to understand. I bury myself in these thoughts, and I find death so terrible that I hate life more because it leads me thereto than because of the thorns with which it is planted. You will say that I want to live forever, then. Not at all. But if my opinion had been asked, I should have preferred to die in my nurse's arms." That would have removed me from vexations of spirit, and would have given me heaven full surely and easily. End of section 68